Now, when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and the shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called to them. Immediately they left their boat and their father and followed him. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, and from Jerusalem and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. Please have your Bibles open to that passage in Matthew chapter 4. And as we have heard from the reading, what this passage so emphatically tells us is that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. King Jesus has come. And Jesus calls all people everywhere to follow him. The definition of Christian as defined in the 1520s is to be a believer in and a follower of Christ. That's what it still means today. Most of us here this morning would call ourselves that, Christians. But our passage this morning causes us to consider the nature of that following. These days, you can just tap a button that says, follow on Twitter and proudly declare to the world, I follow Jesus. Or you could even not do that and just simply declare to the world, I follow Jesus, and then live a life that looks like you're following everything but Jesus. Do you follow Jesus the way he has called you to follow him? Our passage this morning causes us to consider that question afresh. Matthew has spent the first three and a half chapters of his gospel introducing Jesus and showing how his birth and the events around his birth have fulfilled scripture. This happened so it was fulfilled, this passage. But now the passage before us this morning is a turning point in this book. We now go from reading lots of stuff around Jesus to diving into his life and ministry. In many ways, this passage sets up for, uh, for us everything that is to follow in the rest of the book of Matthew. So as a follower of Christ, 
We see three things that Christ commissions us to do in our passage this morning. One, shine the light. Two, follow the king. And three, call the crowds. Those will be our headings as we look at these sections in our passage. Let's begin with our first. Shine the light. Kids, how many of you are afraid of the dark? Don't be shy. Put your hand up. Yeah. Adults, how many of you are afraid of the dark? Don't be shy. Put your hand up. (laughs) You see, kids, you're in good company. There are some of us who are still afraid of the dark. And that's because darkness is unpleasant. Darkness removes one of our senses completely. If you are in a pitch black room or if you are on the dark side of the moon, you might as well be blind. When we are in darkness, we cannot see light. We also cannot see anything else. Now, Matthew shows us that Jesus is the light. Let's read verses 12 to 16. Now, when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light, and for those dwelling in the region in shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. John is arrested, and we'll see him write to Jesus from prison later on in Matthew 11. And because of this, Jesus withdraws to Galilee. Now, this is an interesting phrase because uh, withdraw usually means to go somewhere to hide or to, to try and save yourself. But Capernaum wasn't exactly a small town in the middle of nowhere where Jesus could hide. John had been baptizing near Bethany, south of the Sea of Galilee. There you can see that on the map. And on the other side of the Jordan. Well, Jesus decides it's time to return to his homeland. But instead of returning to his hometown of Nazareth, he went to Capernaum by the sea. Now, see, this, this region in, in the northwest uh, there is, is known as Galilee. That's where Nazareth and Capernaum are. Now, I couldn't get my map to zoom right in on, on this to show Capernaum, so I had to put it there myself. You can see it there. Uh, it's, it's on the uh, northwestern side of the Sea of Galilee. Now, uh, if you're wondering why it's called the Sea of Galilee, even though it just looks like a giant lake, uh, that's because the term sea could also be used for lake. Now, as I said, Capernaum was no Nazareth, right? Nazareth was a smaller town and it was out of the way. Whereas Capernaum was located uh, there on the shore of Galilee and it was a busy uh, fishing village. And not only that, for centuries it had a lot of people coming through the town who were not Jews. And so by Jesus' day, it was full of Gentiles. And notice how Matthew makes a point of naming the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali in verse 13. Uh, kids, can you think back to the Old Testament and remember a guy named Jacob? Do you remember him? He was the son of Isaac, wasn't he? <laughs> 
I almost said Abraham. Pretty sure he's the son of Isaac. Do you know how many sons Jacob had? Anyone? Twelve. That's right. And when those sons multiplied and the people of Israel were organized into tribes, they were named after each of those sons. Two of them were named Zebulun and Naphtali. And those two tribes were given portions of the promised land. This is a rough you know, idea of what the boundaries of those territories were. And so in these regions is where Nazareth and Capernaum lie. So Jesus withdraws from where he was and he makes Capernaum his home. Or at the very least, he he makes it as a a kind of base of operations for his traveling ministry. All of his his preaching and, and miracle working will be done in the regions around here. And Capernaum, Matthew describes as his home. And in so doing, this passage in Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 to 2, is fulfilled. Now, Matthew's quotation of this is not exact, but he doesn't do any damage to the original verses. As is often the case in Scripture, Isaiah 9 has two levels of fulfillment in its prophecy. The Israelites, after being taken into exile, they were restored back to their land. Interestingly, Zebulun and Naphtali, that was the, uh, the last place of the promised land that the Israelites saw as they were being taken off into exile. And now, and then Isaiah prophesies that they would be restored back to their land. And then God, through, Moses, through Matthew, shows us that Isaiah chapter 9 has another layer of meaning to it, which applies to Jesus. It is in this land of Zebulun and Naphtali, it is in this town of Capernaum, which was on the way of the sea, that the light has dawned. It is among a people that the Jews despised, the Gentiles, that the light would dawn. You see, this isn't exactly something the Jews of Jesus' day would be super stoked about. One of their early morning blessings said this, Blessed are you, God, sovereign of the universe, who did not make me a Gentile. But the sovereign God of the universe as his original promise to Abraham states, created his people Israel so that they would be a blessing to the world. That was always the plan. And that plan has dawned. The light has dawned. Oh, and don't be fooled. This isn't a a kind of generic feel-good, you know, Jesus was so inspirational kind of light. If you read the rest of Isaiah chapter 9, you will come across that great, well-known verse. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. As Matthew has done all the way along so far in his book, here is yet another clear indicator of the fact that Jesus is God. Matthew is saying that the one that Isaiah 9 points to, the light that has dawned amongst a people who dwell in darkness, is this very one, Jesus. 
The one who was to come, the light who would dawn amongst the Gentiles is Jesus. God is in the business of bringing light into darkness. He did it at creation, after all. And the people in Capernaum, in the region of Galilee, where Jesus lived and ministered, had the incredible privilege of seeing a great light. True light from true light, as the Nicene Creed puts it. Now, Jesus' physical body is no longer with us, yet his light continues to shine. You are the light of the world, he says, in talking to his disciples. His disciples are the ones who continue to shine the light of Christ into our world. Church, we are the light of the world, the city on a hill. And to be clear, we are the light not because we are more moral than other people. We are not the light because we are friendly with others, even though we ought to be that. And yes, our good works are certainly part of what is supposed to shine before others, as Jesus goes on to say in Matthew 5. But those good works, they don't come about through a sheer force of will. The light we shine is not just being a good person. No, those good works shine because we are the moon. The moon reflects the sun. And we do the same. Our lives and our conduct are reflections of the light of Christ, who has brought us out of darkness and into his light. Do we shine that light, brothers and sisters? Or do we hide it under a basket? Are you aware of how dark it is in Darwin? Do you know how much death has cast its shadow over this city? In the most recent 2021 census, we discovered that no religion is now the top belief that people list on the Australian census. It's, that is unsurprising to most Christians. It's just what the census data now seems to be getting closer to what is actually the reality. But that doesn't change the fact that this is still confronting Let me show you a map that the SBS put together based on the census data. There's a lot of, what color is that? Gray. No religion. Darwin is overwhelmingly a no religion city. And it's one thing to look at a map like that and to think about the fact that each stat represents a person living in darkness. It's another to face to put a face to that statistic. You see, this this map, these grey areas, they represent people you know. This is Brenda, whom you pass on your morning walk each day. This is Glenn, who services your car. This is Christiana, who lives next door. This is Rodney from Accounting. This is Nari, your local MP. 
It might seem like a statistic that seems overwhelming, but each one represents a person that you might know or might soon get to know. And they are a person living and dwelling in darkness. How are we being the light of Christ to this city? How often do you pray that the light of the gospel would shine through us in Darwin? Would you pray with me now for our city? Lord, may it be true that the people dwelling in darkness would see a great light here in Darwin. May the light of Christ shine forth from your people as we scatter and as we gather Let's take the next few moments to bring before the Lord in our own hearts the people that we know who are dwelling in darkness. And let's pray that the Lord would use us to shine the light of Jesus in their lives, that they might come to faith and glorify him who is in heaven. Lord, may your church in Darwin be a city on a hill so that death's shadow would not be long here, we pray. And may we be the light of the world by reflecting the light of the sun. In Jesus' name, amen. Church, shine the light of Christ and keep praying for our city. Keep praying for those in your life. Well, if our role is indeed to reflect the light of the sun, how is that done? Well, that's what verse 17 is all about. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Perhaps you're wondering why Matthew is saying that the light has dawned when really Jesus has been alive for 30-something years. Why would he put that here? And Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Why is it only now that the light has dawned? Well, it is of course true that, as we sang before, the light came to Bethlehem when Jesus was born. But it's important to recognize that Matthew is making a different point, and that's why this verse is so crucial. You see, up until this point, we haven't heard anything about what Jesus has preached Up until now, he hasn't been calling people to follow him or performing great miracles or anything like that. He's just been minding his business as a carpenter. But now a new chapter in the life of Jesus begins. Even though John the Baptist had already proclaimed these same words, on the lips of Jesus, they carry a different weight. You see, John preached 
Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand in anticipation of the king who was coming, of the one who would bring the kingdom. And Jesus preaches it as the king who has come. This is the turning point. Jesus is the light because he proclaims a message of the kingdom of heaven and he calls people everywhere to repent, to turn away from their sin, to stop loving the darkness, to stop dwelling in the darkness and to step into the light of his kingdom. At hand there means that it is not only near or close. It's not only that the kingdom is, is about to come, it means that it is also here and now. As you read through all the Gospels, you'll find that the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God is spoken of in ways that indicate that it has already arrived in Jesus, but also that it is yet to fully come. It's what Christians often call the now and not yet I went to a cafe in Melbourne once called the Now and Not Yet Cafe, owned by a Christian guy. Now and not yet. That is, the kingdom is here. It has been inaugurated. It has begun to break into the world because Jesus the King has come. But it is not yet fully here. The engagement ring is on, but the wedding ring is yet to be placed. The sun has just broken over the horizon. It has dawned, but it has not yet reached its zenith, its highest point. Jesus' kingdom is at hand, and it is a kingdom of light. And it's why as Christians we proclaim the same message. We can say that the kingdom of heaven is at hand because it's still true. It has come in Jesus and it is yet to fully come on the day that he returns. Those very same words apply in a different way, but they apply. We shine the light by reflecting Jesus and by calling people to repent and believe in him. Because the kingdom of heaven is a kingdom of following the king. And that brings us to our second section. Follow the king. Did you ever play the game, follow the leader? Kids, any of you play it? Yeah, good, getting some nods. Well, if you haven't, the name basically explains the rules. The idea is that one person is at the front and everybody else follows behind and they go where the leader goes and they do what the leader does. So if the leader is walking to the playgrounds doing a funny dance, then all the followers do the same thing. Well, following Jesus is not nearly as silly as that, but the idea is the same. To follow Jesus is to go where he goes and do what he does. Let's read our next passage. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James the son of Zebedee and John his brother, in the boat with Zebedee their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately 
they left the boat and their father and followed him. Another hint at the fact that Capernaum was a region with many Gentiles is in Andrew's name. Even though Simon is a Jewish name, that of his brothers, Andrew, is Greek. And all the men in this passage were fishermen. And you might have heard that Jesus' disciples were poor and uneducated. Well, actually, the fishing industry was booming in this town. It would be a bit like working at the gas plant in Darwin. And Mark even records that the Zebedee family had employees. So given that many Oh, sorry, given the many other cultures present in this region, in the city of Capernaum, it's prob- probable that these fishermen understood Greek culture well and probably even spoke Greek. That's worth, I tell you that because it's worth remembering the next time someone tries to tell you that there's no way that the apostles could have remembered and recorded all the things uh, that the Bible says that they did. But as helpful as that information is in understanding this passage, the most important part is verse 19. I will make you fishers of men. Follow me. Or in modern English, I will make you fishers of people. Jesus is telling them to actually follow him around in person. This was a follow the leader kind of following. And it had its roots in what rabbis of the day would do in having disciples that followed them around. Well, Jesus' disciples would go where he went and observe his life and ministry. And they would listen to and absorb his teaching and eventually go and do what he did. Again, this is something that Jesus calls us to do the same. As Paul says later on, follow me as I follow Christ. If you want to continue to grow in your discipleship, in your faith, in your walk in, with following the Lord, you follow around somebody who uh, has, has been in the faith for a long time, somebody who, who can, can uh, help teach you the word, continue to encourage you with the word, encourage you in faith, spend time with them, watch what they do, observe their lives, That is what following means. And these fishermen, they did not hesitate for a moment to leave everything behind to follow Jesus. They went immediately. Now, did they have no idea who Jesus was? You know, was, was he just some random guy who came along and said, follow me? And they thought, man, he's, he looks like he's going places. And so they just, they just did. Maybe. But I think John chapter 1 seems to indicate that these disciples probably had seen and heard about Jesus before he actually called them. It's likely that they had some idea of who he was. Or whatever the case, the point is that they followed Jesus without a moment's hesitation. And they did so willingly and readily, leaving everything behind. They left their job security, and in the case of James and John, they even left their immediate family to follow him. Just as Elisha did when Elijah called him, burning his oxen and his cart, knowing that he wouldn't be coming back to his old farming life. 
So these fishermen left their nets immediately and became followers of Jesus, fishers of people. Friends, if you are here and you are not yet a follower of Jesus, what is holding you back? Perhaps you still have some questions or some doubts about who Jesus is. Maybe you're still wondering whether he is worth the cost or not. Well, these things are good to think about and worth weighing up because the narrow path that leads to life in the kingdom of heaven has many thorns and many obstacles. Following Jesus, as he says, means carrying your cross, and that cross has its fair share of splinters. But if you have come to recognize, as those of us who follow Christ have, that even in spite of the challenges, the suffering that are promised when it comes to follow him, that he is worth it, then what is holding you back? What stuff are you holding on to that seems better than the eternal life Jesus offers? If you're ever in the unfortunate position of being in a plane crash, but one where you have the chance to escape, one of the things that the flight attendants will be yelling at you as you make your way to the exit slide is, leave your stuff behind. Why? Because those few seconds might be the difference between life and death. As the Los Angeles Times put it, if your plane crashes, leave your stuff behind unless you really want to die. So is the call of Jesus. What stuff are you unwilling to leave behind in following him? Christian, what stuff are you still holding on to that you're perhaps turning over in your hands and thinking, do do I really, can I, should I get rid of this? Should I let go of it? I'm not sure. Are you afraid that following Jesus isn't going to come close to the joy that other earthly treasures and pleasures bring you? Are you worried that spending more time in prayer and in the Word just isn't going to cut it after a long day at work? Do you hedge your bets and think, well, in case this Jesus stuff doesn't work out, well, at least it's you know, given me some great morals and a bit of purpose. Let me just kind of try and still find some, some joy in other things. And you know, at least I've got my heavenly insurance in place. That is not how Jesus calls us to follow. Don't risk your life for some stuff. True life in the light awaits. Leave it all behind immediately. It is worth it. He is worth it. These men recognized that he was worth following and worth leaving everything to follow. Some of our biggest temptations are going to come from the things that we are most familiar and comfortable with. Past sins, past comforts, 
that we know brought us happiness and meaning and fulfillment before we came to Christ? After all, what did Peter and the other disciples do after Jesus had died and they had lost all hope? I'm going fishing. And we'll go with you. They went back to what they knew. They went back to what was comfortable. Brothers and sisters, be alert and on your guard from the sins of your past, the sins of your former life before Christ. They will tempt you and seek to reel you in and pull you away from Jesus. The arms of former lovers, the highs of substances and alcohol, the comfort of finding your identity in your work or your talents, the glow of pride and self-centeredness and the ability to boast in your achievements. Don't put your hand to the plow and look back. There's no hope there. There's no joy there. Instead, look forward and fix your eyes on the king who has called you to follow him and called you to be fishers of people. That is your calling in life. That is what God puts you on the planet to be. That is what he has saved you to do. We give up everything to follow him. And if that seems like it is a heavy price to pay, that's because it is. But the price of entry to the kingdom of heaven is undoubtedly, unmeasurably worth it. And Jesus wants you to tell the whole world about that. Which brings us to our final section. Call the crowds. Perhaps you've heard what they say about crowds. A crowd builds a crowd. When something happens which people are interested in and there's a crowd of people watching or doing it, it attracts more people. Kids, what do you do when you see a bunch of other kids sitting around a phone and watching something? Do you leave them? Do you, kind, do you go, oh, I bet whatever they're watching is boring. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to go and walk here and watch the paint dry. Do you do that? No, pretty much every time you go, that, that's got to be interesting. And you go around and get behind the phone, look at the screen, see what it is, right? Crowd builds a crowd. And sometimes crowds building a crowd can be a bad thing, like when people go rioting and looting, or when they go to a Nickelback concert or something like that. Sometimes it can just be a silly thing, like the guy who created a public Facebook event to see if anybody wanted to join him in getting chicken nuggets at McDonald's. 4,000 people replied and said they would go. I'm not sure how many actually went. Crowd builds a crowd. And sometimes it can be a good thing, even the best thing, as we see in our last passage here. From verse 23. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick 
those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. Notice how verse 25 says the crowds followed Jesus from all of these places. Now, this isn't the same kind of following that we just read about with Simon and Andrew and James and John. As you read Matthew's gospel, you find that the crowds are people who don't fit in the same camp as Jesus' disciples. You see, the crowds haven't yet left everything to follow Jesus. They are simply following him around because there's some really interesting, amazing stuff that is happening around him. But they don't fit in the Pharisees and the other enemies of Jesus' camp either. You see, they're not antagonistic towards him. If anything, they're more favorable towards Jesus. But they are what we would call fence-sitters or perhaps freeloaders. You see, they are liking what they are seeing and they are willing to give it a go, but they're still not fully convinced. It makes sense, doesn't it, that this is what would happen? If a true miracle worker came to Darwin and did all of these things, if they healed every disease and healed every affliction, along with those oppressed by demons and even paralytics, you can bet there would be a crowd. As the news spreads, there'd be people grabbing kids from the hospital and grandparents from the old folks' home to bring them to this miracle worker. I'm sure you would even have people flying in from all over the place once the news spread. I mean, fake miracles, fake miracle workers draw crowds, right? Imagine what a real one would do. Matthew takes care to show us that the crowds are made up of the very people who dwelt in darkness but have now seen a great light. Look at that list in verse 25, all of those people coming from those areas. There were those from Galilee and Jerusalem in Judea, which were probably mostly Jews, but they also came from the Decapolis and from beyond the Jordan. That is an intentional description to show that, they, that there were Gentiles who were coming to him. The Decapolis was this region made up of roughly 10 cities. And it was on the uh, eastern side of the River Jordan. There were also those who came uh, uh, from beyond that region, others. And they were made up of mostly Gentiles. The people dwelling in darkness had indeed seen a great Light. And what was that light? Jesus. Healing the sick, casting out demons, teaching in the synagogues, and most importantly, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. Jesus performed all of these miracles because in doing so, they confirmed the fact that the kingdom of heaven truly was at hand. It had arrived. The anticipated signs of the the coming Messiah King, like the ones found in Isaiah 35 verses 5 to 6, they were happening right in front of their eyes. That's why Jesus performed these miracles. And he would continue to do so for the rest of his life and ministry. 
Or perhaps you're thinking, well, that's great because it's Jesus, but I'm no miracle worker. Maybe you've heard, as I have a number of times in my life, that in order for the proclamation of the gospel to have impact, or in order for it to be credible, it must be accompanied by signs and wonders. After all, it's what Jesus did, and it's what the disciples did, what the apostles did when, they, when Jesus sent them out. Well, that is simply untrue. The purpose of Jesus performing such incredible signs was to confirm his ministry, to confirm his identity as the Son of God, as the Messiah who was long prophesied. And while the goal of following Jesus is absolutely to be more like him, we recognize that he is not just fully man, but also fully God. And in that aspect, we will never be like him. And not only that, his, this period of time was unique in history, not to be repeated. There is an unimaginable gap between modern claims of healing and what Jesus actually did. There has been no person after Jesus and the apostles who has been able to heal every disease and every affliction among the people. If you find such an example, please let me know. I would love to see it. And that's because the kingdom came with the coming of Christ. These miracles authenticated and proved that the kingdom of heaven has indeed come. Just as Jesus proved that he really was the son of God by resisting the devil's temptations, so now he proves that he is the Messiah by performing these great signs. So brothers and sisters, when we proclaim the gospel of the kingdom, it need not come with healing every disease and every affliction among the people. After all, such signs don't even guarantee that the crowds would go from simply following him around and watching the the great things he was doing to becoming his disciples. But they confirmed that Jesus was the king of this kingdom. As followers of Christ today, without Jesus' body present with us, without him walking around doing these same things we read about in Matthew, we still call the crowds to follow him. It is our commission to proclaim the same gospel of the kingdom that he declared. Repent and believe the good news. Repent, the kingdom of heaven has come. And it's called the gospel of the kingdom because Christ has brought his kingdom near to us and has made it possible for all people everywhere to enter into it. We are the ones who dwell in darkness because of our sin. And our sin keeps us out of the kingdom of heaven because he is holy. Yet the good news of the kingdom, the gospel of the kingdom, is that Christ became darkness He became sin for us so that through faith in him, we might receive mercy and have his righteousness credited to us. Maybe you're here this morning and you are part of the crowds. Perhaps you admire Jesus and you find his message to contain wisdom. I hope that you would actually take the next step and leave everything behind to follow him. Repent and believe in the gospel. 
And I'd love to talk to you some more about that after this. And brothers and sisters, we must remember that there will always be a crowd. There can't not be a crowd. As followers of King Jesus proclaim the gospel of the kingdom, and as they live as the light of the world, that will always attract attention. As we demonstrate not perfect lives, but a perfect Savior bestowing grace upon us daily. As our church embodies a people who live by a kingdom of heaven ethic, and as our relationships form and strengthen based on the kind of love that Jesus shows to us, the crowds will find something compelling about that. Do you desire that? Do you pray for that? Do you strive to see that become a reality in our lives and in our church? We ought to praise God for the fact that he will draw people to himself through our proclamation and through our witness. And we must call those crowds. We must call them and urge them and pray for them that they would not remain in the crowd, but that they would leave everything behind and follow him. They would leave their nets. They would leave all their stuff and find that living in the light is far better than living in darkness. Church, the light has dawned and the kingdom has come. We must shine the light and follow the king and call the crowds. May we do that until the day the kingdom of heaven comes in its fullness. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that he is the light who has brought salvation to each of us who dwell in darkness. We thank you that it is by his work by his perfect life and his substitutionary death on the cross that we might be brought into the light and even be called the light of the world. Help us, Father, be ones who shine your light as ones who reflect the light of the sun, who live lives saturated by grace and growing in holiness. Father, may we be followers who proclaim the gospel of the kingdom at every opportunity we have. May we be bold in doing so, not afraid of whether we might say the right or the wrong thing. but to, in love, 
call people to Christ. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus, our Saviour. Amen.